0: Afterward, my father had a very long and successful life in Canada after his arrival in 1947. The determination and intelligence evident in his memoir served him well in quickly remaking his life once given the opportunity. As his brother Eddie had promised, he was soon able to go on to study at university. He spent his first summer in Canada secluded in the country house of Eddie's in-laws, in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal, preparing to take the entrance exams, and was accepted at McGill University in the fall of that same year. During that first year, he spent all his free time with Eddie and his family, Eddie's Canadian wife, Faye, and their first son, Howard, who was born that year, as well as the grandparents. They were all very welcoming and supportive, and my father embraced this new family. From the moment he was able to attend university, he did not stop. After earning a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, he went straight to his master's degree, then completed his PhD in 1955. He was always grateful to a young professor of first-year chemistry at MacDonald College at McGill, where he was enrolled in a B.Sc. with a major in engineering. This professor, just a few years older than my father at the time, took him aside one day and asked about his background and education. He told my father he should specialize in chemistry, since he seemed to have a natural inclination for the subject. He hardly took any notes and got very high marks on tests. It was evident from the start that he took to the subject. Unfortunately, he didn't remember the name of that young professor, but was always grateful for that advice and encouragement. In the summer of 1948, he met my mother, Lea Paltiel, when they were both working as counselors at a camp in the Laurentians. They had a whirlwind courtship and married in September of that same year. She was studying French and then library science at McGill. They often spoke French together and sang romantic French songs by artists like Maurice Chevalier. I witnessed this bond years later when they would visit me in Spain. And after a few glasses of good wine, they would break into those charming old songs. It's my fondest memory of them as a couple. On completing his doctorate, my father worked for two years as a research chemist in industry, but soon landed a position on the Central Experimental Farm, part of the Federal Department of Agriculture, which became Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Ottawa where he was a principal researcher until his formal retirement in 1991. In fact, however, he worked well beyond that time, continuing to go into his lab until past his 90th birthday. His mind was still clear until months before his death at the age of 98 this spring, 2020. But his deteriorating eyesight did not allow him to continue to carry out research, write or edit papers. He wrote some 400 scientific papers over his long career. I always remember him writing away madly by hand at the dining room table, which was essentially his desk at home. He also contributed to scientific textbooks and collections, and directed the research of some 25 postdoctoral fellows and visiting scientists from many different countries, something he particularly enjoyed. He was appreciated as a generous, clear, and patient teacher. His parents would have been extremely proud of how much he made of the opportunities he encountered after the war. He was a member of numerous scientific societies in Canada and abroad, but his greatest honor was being awarded the Wolf Prize in Agriculture in Israel in 1996 for his pioneering work studying soil organic matter. It was a very moving ceremony in the Knesset in Jerusalem, surrounded by the beautiful Chagall stained-glass windows. My son and I were there with him, though sadly, my mother had died several years before. My father also came to be much appreciated as a speaker on topics other than soil chemistry, especially on the subject of the Holocaust and his own experiences during the war, or on themes from the Jewish studies he had undertaken with groups of friends interested in expanding and deepening their knowledge. Most recently, he spoke at the Montreal Holocaust Museum on the anniversary of Kristallnacht in November of 2019. At the age of 97, he spoke without notes, clearly and steadily, telling his own story of that period and of the final warning he received from his father, that steeled his determination to resist and survive through the worst circumstances, always avoiding any cooperation with the Nazis. At the end of his talk, he strongly denounced what he felt was the general lack of resistance on the part of Jews in particular, and passionately urged us all to always keep fighting against oppression. His talk was very well received, and many audience members, young and old, came to shake his hand afterwards. I grew up with these stories. The stories of my father's childhood in Germany and his lost youth during the war. His misadventures in ice cold Frisian ditches at dawn or with ice cold Frisian farmers could make me weep with laughter. In fact, there was often some comic relief in the way he talked about his physical hardships, his encounters with authorities, or his narrow escapes. I always sought his ability to keep on seeing the absurdity. The upside-down madness of his situation kept him going as much as did his recognition of the everyday realities to be faced. Somewhere in his mind, no matter what role or what situation he was in at the time, there was always the original Moritz Schnitzer, not only monitoring his performance, but also standing outside the madness. At least, I believe there must have been, because somehow he emerged intact. The young man who emerged from this maelstrom had somehow managed to hold on to not only his physical self and his intelligence, but also his essential humanity. He wasn't bitter, not twisted into hatred by his experiences, though he might be aghast, woeful, outraged, contemptuous. He blamed the people who did nothing, who went along, who betrayed, who took part. There was never any excuse for selling your soul for losing your humanity. Thanks to these stories and the success I knew he made of himself, I grew up with a strong belief in the human spirit, as well as a strong connection with other horrible stories we hear all the time, stories of oppression and suffering. I can't be sure of all the lessons my father expected me to draw from his stories. I'm sure he knew I would draw my own no matter what he intended. I learned the simple fact that even in the most so-called civilized of societies, circumstances can turn sour and be exploited by power mongers and madmen, and ordinary people can turn against each other, thinking that they have something to gain. I learned that, yes, the truth is that in order to protect ourselves and safeguard our rights to our beliefs and practices, we must stand by everyone else's rights as well. There's no way out of it, We're condemned to coexist. We're interdependent. We must look out for each other. I am especially grateful that he shared with me the stories of my murdered, lost family, so they could be part of me, too. My grandparents, Harriman and Rosa, and my red-headed uncle, Benno. When I first got to know them in my childhood, I wanted to know what they were like, and I tried to bring them to life in my imagination, through my father's anecdotes and descriptions. It was only much later, in my thirties, with a red-headed son of my own, that I would be suddenly and repeatedly overwhelmed by grief. The thought of those parents, dignified and hard-working people, who had once believed they lived in the greatest country in the world, herded into ghettos and then cattle cars and Nazi camps with their youngest son. The thought of Benno, a teenage boy, seeing his world collapse into madness, barely having lived any happy moments in his short life, and my grandmother, who hadn't been able to part with him, how she must have suffered as she saw his life slowly strangled away. I grieved their loss, along with my father. Since those early years, I've lived in many different places and at one time taught newcomers to Canada, many of them members of persecuted minorities like my father. Most of them were also similar to him in that they were well-educated and well-rounded and also very ambitious, just as my father was when he finally managed to get to Canada. They often had that wry sense of humor that helped them keep going, too. Occasionally, they told me stories of their own that I rushed to tell my father, to unburden myself to someone who knew, and to let him know that I continued to be aware of the whole spectrum of human possibilities. And I told my students, those new storytellers, that we must all make the best of what we have here and never be led into that downward spiral from prejudice to persecution. But in fact, they tended to know that better than most Canadians, I found. My father's story, after all, is also one of many refugee stories, and it can be hard for many people to read. We're lucky to live these lessons secondhand to only hear the stories of one of the darkest periods of history, when there were factories of death in the middle of Europe. My father's story makes us proud to be human, but also ashamed. It reminds us of how people both betrayed and defended their essential humanity in a time so close to our own, and in places supposedly so much like our own. It brings us closer to the nightly news on television, where we can always find stories like these. It gives an example of incredible level-headedness, ingenuity, determination, and integrity. It will, I hope, put your own life into perspective for some time to come. My parents were together until my mother's death from cancer in 1994. My father supported and helped nurse my mother through her long painful illness and enabled her to die at home. After her death, he was alone for a long time, but he maintained friendships and also participated regularly in the services and discussions of the small egalitarian conservative synagogue that he and my mother had helped found years ago, where everyone, male and female, can take part in leading the service. He had another family consisting of me, his daughter, my son Jan, and his wife Nadine, and their three small children. He also kept in touch with some of his cousins who had gone to Israel, especially Nahum Vered, who called him regularly and visited whenever he could. My father felt very close to these three generations that followed him, and we will always be so very fond and proud of him. He was a huge, strong but humble presence, and I feel his absence deeply. He had much to teach us all, and I am glad that through this book, his life lessons will continue to provoke thoughtful discussion on a wider scale. Eve Schnitzer, July 2020.